Hi, Cornerstone. Today's teaching text is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you are doing in the lives of our people during the season of Advent. Um, And we're thankful that just like this passage says, that we do not grieve like the rest of mankind, Lord, that we grieve with hope. So thank you for that hope. Today, we um, just want to come before you remembering that this hope is found in you um, and in nothing else, God. We give you this day and we just are thankful for all that you're doing in the lives of our people. We love you so much, God. Amen. Hey, friends, it's Sunday, December the 20th, five days away from Christmas. Uh, On Christmas Eve, we're going to attempt to gather on the lawn at our location on Lewis at 5 p.m. for one last worship service on the lawn. It's probably going to be cold. So bundle up, we'll sing some Christmas carols for a nice short service, close out our time just the same way that we began at that location, and uh, really sweetly welcome uh, the Christmas celebration. Hope that you can be part of it. All month long, we've been talking about this theme of Christian hope. And in a year of fatigue and loss and frustration, we've been asking the question, what good can we count on from God? Not just in a short-term temporal sense, but in in, in an ultimate kind of sense. What can we count on from God? Where is this human story leading? And so we talked early on about the the frustration that many of us feel, and it's, it's voiced in one of the most common prayers in the Bible. How long, Lord, how long? We discussed taking all of that angst and groaning and investing it into the last prayer of the Bible seen in Revelation 22, which simply prays, come Lord Jesus. We talked about the concept of the renewal of place, looking at Revelation 21, how when Christ returns, the earth itself is going to be renewed. And we began to imagine uh, how that, that might look in a particular sense. So imagining those places where you've experienced trauma or grief or loss and thinking even that spot, that little corner of the cosmos is going to experience healing and renewal. Last week, we talked about the theme of the restoration of presence, that when Christ returns, we will see him who our heart desires. There will be an end to guessing and end to frustration and what a gift it's going to be For those of us who believe, and maybe perhaps especially for those who struggle to believe, they really want to, but then there will come a day when our faith is made sight and we see him. We'll stand in the presence of the living God, the veil removed, the glass withdrawn, and and we're in the presence of the one who made us. 
in this season and in this year, but really in all of the seasons of life, we need a sense of hope that can anchor us when things are challenging and difficult. We need a sense that it's going to be okay, that's not just wishful thinking or blind optimism. But hope is a really tricky thing. Uh, Scriptures say hope deferred makes the heart sick. Uh, I like the musician Ben Folds a lot, and Ben Folds did an album with the author Nick Hornby called Lonely Avenue. And the opening track to the album is telling the story of this chronically ill person who checks into the hospital on New Year's Eve. And as the clock strikes midnight and fireworks are going off and people are uncorking champagne, he feels the possibility of hope or optimism rising that maybe in this next year he can get better. But then the chorus, again, very depressingly says, has this line that says, hope is a liar, a cheat, and a thief. If hope comes near you, kick its backside because it's got no place in days like these. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. In his book, uh, Necessary Endings, Henry Cloud really helpfully distinguishes between hopes and wishes. He says, a wish is a desire that is not grounded in objective realities that suggest that it could be fulfilled. A wish is a desire not grounded in objective realities that suggest it could be fulfilled. So give you an example. I wish that I could fly like Superman. I've had this wish since I was a really little kid. Now, uh, do I have any pixie dust? No, I do not. Is there any indication that wings are sprouting back here? No, there is not. Though in college, I did know this guy who had a feather growing out of the middle of his back. True story. Is there any reason to believe whatsoever that I'm suddenly going to gain the ability to fly? No, there is not. In this case, lacking some kind of objective grounding, an objective reason to believe this could actually happen, this is a wish. And the course of wisdom then is not to delude myself into believing that this wish is going to come true, which I did as a child. I was riding my bike. I was five, six, seven years old, something like that. And I thought, and I was really into Superman. I wore a cape all the time. I thought, I'm going to give flying a shot. So as I'm riding my bike, I stand up on the seat and I jump. And for a second, I was ascending and it was really great. But then I came smack down really hard on the concrete. I broke my wrist. I went to the doctor. I got a purple cast. My neighbor, Allison Worley, wrote a little book about it, and I learned my lesson. That was a wish. But hope, on the other hand, true hope, is tied to objective realities. There are actually verifiable reasons to make me think this could actually happen. Uh, for as long as I can remember, I've been a scrawny guy. I am lanky, but I am scrawny. I think that I have been negative 4% body fat most of my life, and I've had a slightly lower percentage of muscle mass all of my life. And one of my hopes for this season of life, like it's a, you know, it's a stretching season of life, and I've discovered I need to exercise so I don't get, you know, overwhelmed. That energy needs to go somewhere. One of my hopes for this season of life is that I would gain slightly more muscle mass than I currently have. Now, I know what tons of you are thinking. You're thinking, John, you're like bursting out of that shirt, you know, with all of your muscles right now. Is this even a safe thing to do? And I've talked to my doctors. It's a totally reasonable thing to do. I'll be fine. So what objective realities uh, could, could make me believe that 
like I actually could get stronger, that this hope is not, uh, you know, just in vain. Well, for starters, I've joined a gym. Uh, you know, I mask up, I keep my distance, all the stuff, uh, you know the drill. I've committed to a schedule of working out three times a week. I'm using an app that uh, puts together these workouts that are way harder than I would put together on my own. Uh, I'm drinking water, I'm up in my protein intake, and I'm committed to sticking with the plan. Now, I'm no CrossFitter. Uh, you know, first rule of CrossFit, by the way, is always talk about CrossFit. Uh, so I'm no CrossFitter, but like I'm, I'm making some progress. Am I going to be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger? Well, probably. I'm probably, no, I'm probably not going to be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger, but is it reasonable to think that I will gain some muscle mass and definition? Yes. It's reasonable to hope for that out kind of, that kind of outcome because it's tied to objective realities that are increasing the likelihood that my hope will not be deferred. So to bring this into the, con- the context of Christian hope, I could ask a couple of questions. What objective realities anchor Christian hope? Hope for the renewal of all things, that all of our longings will not be forever put off. Hope that this is not, that makes this not just some kind of like pie in the sky wishful thinking, but a kind of hope that can give us the strength to endure and not give in to despair and even to be courageous and content in all situations, filled with hope in everything. And what can we hope for with regard to the ultimate challenge of being a person, which is our mortality, the reality of death? And how does Christian hope enable us to to cope with uh, the fact of death, that those who have preceded us in death, like like what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to us? Now, I love this passage in 1 Thessalonians. It's a really great one. I don't know how much time you've spent with 1 Thessalonians. It's a great book. Um, But the passage we've just read is one that I would argue has been just grossly misinterpreted and misread by really large numbers of Christians. It's one of the primary scriptures that's cited in making a case for the rapture. You know, the rapture being like those scenes in the Left Behind books or the Left Behind movies where there's a pilot, you know, in the cockpit and the rapture happens and suddenly there's just a pile of clothes sitting there and the plane is, you know, in a lot of trouble. Or there's a teacher teaching, teaching a class, the rapture happens, they're gone. Everywhere you're just seeing these like piles of clothing because people have been like zoomed into space like a beam me up Scotty uh, kind of thing. And uh, this, is, this, this language of meeting the Lord in the air, which we're going to talk about and unpack, is really the primary source of confusion. It's mistakenly read uh, to say that we're going to live with the Lord in the air, in the clouds, in heaven, like in a different galaxy dimension kind of thing. And that is simply not what's going on in the passage here in 1 Thessalonians. So in, in the context of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's providing them with the theological framework for Christian hope. But it's not just theory. It actually gives them a lot of practical benefit. He's explaining how this, this theology of a hope helps us process and approach death differently than those who don't know Jesus and those who, who believe otherwise. So we're going to walk through the text. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to just stay open to 1 Thessalonians 4. Look what Paul says in verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, 
We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. In your mind, underline that phrase, those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, stop here. I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. First, I want you to note the way that Paul talks about those who loved Jesus and have died. The, the language that you see lots of times in the New Testament is he says they sleep in death. Paul uses this in other epistles. He says those who are asleep in Christ. But he, he likes this metaphor of, of sleep as a way of talking about uh, death for those who love Jesus. Now, he doesn't say they're in a better place. He doesn't say they're in heaven, though they are. He doesn't say they became like one of the angels. His preferred language and metaphor for talking about those who love Jesus and who are dead is that they are asleep, asleep in death or asleep in Christ. And this metaphor is significant and it's suggestive because everyone knows that, generally speaking, those who sleep are going to wake up, except in very, very rare cases. And similarly, as Paul's going to say, like resurrection should be the way that we think about the future for those who now sleep in death, that they will wake up to a new reality for those who sleep in death. I would just suggest that in the way that we as followers of Jesus talk about death, we should adapt as our normal language, the language that um, the apostles, that the, the, the scriptures use in talking about death. Uh, my grandmothers are asleep in Christ. Uh, we even train our children to say, yeah, Grandma Ree is asleep in Christ. She's with Jesus and she's waiting on her resurrection body. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. My friend Cavett is asleep in Christ, but they won't be like that forever. The second thing I want you to see about verse 13 here is that Paul acknowledges that the Orthodox Christian way of thinking about death provides us with hope. Those who don't believe lack hope, but Christian Orthodox belief about this gives us hope. But I want you to remember what we've said. Hope For hope to be hope, it must be tethered to some kind of objective reality. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. So we could ask Paul, Paul, what objective realities could ground our hope? Give us a reason to believe this is, there's like good due cause to believe that this is going to happen. Well, look at verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, for, meaning he's, he's connecting his thinking in verse 13 with this next phrase, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, as a consequence of that, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. If Jesus wasn't literally bodily raised from the dead, the Christian faith should be written off. Uh, you know, it's like the scriptures say, like, if, if this isn't true, then we should just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead in the middle of history, then what we believe is just totally bunk. But we believe it's the, actually the likeliest explanation for the unforeseen rapid growth and endurance of the church through the ages. If it didn't happen, Jesus is just a failed Messiah, and, and everyone anticipates that, that his movement is going to fizzle out. But because it did happen, Jesus was raised from the dead, 
It verifies everything he said, and it also validates the story that Jesus believed himself to be fulfilling, that is, the Old Testament. It validates the whole thing because he was raised from the dead. And because we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we believe that there's objective reason to hope for our own resurrection, for those, of, for those who are currently asleep in Christ. Now, now is where we begin to get into some of the questions about rapture and rapture theology. Listen to the language of, of the scriptures. It says, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who are now asleep. So as Paul is talking about what's to happen in the age to come when Christ returns, he says those who are now asleep in Christ, asleep in death, will come with Jesus. Well, where is he coming? Well, he's coming here. The scripture consistently tells us in the New Testament that at the end, at the end of days, when the, when the earth is renewed, we're not zooming off to heaven, but heaven is coming to us. Jesus is coming to us, bringing with him those who now sleep in Christ. When the earth is renewed, uh, the dead will be raised here. Well, what's going to happen to those who are alive when Christ returns? It's all right here in the text. Look at verse 15. He says, according to the Lord's word, in other words, on Jesus' authority, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, he's coming here, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is, this may be a little confusing, but Paul's getting at sequencing. Christ returns, the dead are raised, and then something happens to us. Verse 16, it says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, to gear you up for this next verse, verse 17 is the one that really sometimes confuses people. Uh, I want to remind you of a common occurrence that's going to get you in the proper uh, headspace to begin to hear this verse aright. Do you remember when President Trump uh, came for his, uh, his rally in Tulsa? Now, forget about the controversy about it. Forget about masks. Forget about blah, 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 all that stuff. But roll with me. This year, the president of the United States of America came to our city. And I want you to remember what happened when he came. Air Force One lands at Tulsa International Airport. It comes to a stop on the tarmac. And there on the tarmac is uh, Governor Stitt, Lieutenant Governor Pinnell, Mayor Bynum, some of our representatives, Kevin Hearn, uh, James Lankford. They're all right there to meet and welcome the president of the United States. They go to him and then they welcome him by accompanying him into the state and into the city. Or think about this. In my family, when we go over to my parents' house for a big family gathering, my, my brothers, my sister, and all of their families, inevitably what happens is that Emily and I and the kids pull into my parents' driveway. We're getting out of the car, and the people who are inside come outside to see us. Dad's going to be there, talk, picking up kids and giving hugs. Mom's coming out if my sister and brother-in-law beat us there. They come out to greet us, only to welcome us back in. And the idea of going out to welcome someone of importance in is, is a symbolic conference of honor. It's an extension of honor. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul has this idea uh, 
explicitly in his mind as he's using the language because the Roman citizens would have understood what it would have been like when Caesar would visit a town. The people of the town would come out of the town into the streets, throwing a party on the sidelines to welcome Caesar into their town only to follow the parade back into their town. They go out to welcome in to confer honor. Now, consider what Paul is saying in verse 17 here. It says, the Lord has come down from heaven. He's ascended. Uh, you know, coming, or he's, he's coming down with the voice of an archangel. The trumpet is blowing. The dead have arisen. And then verse 17 says this. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Remember Acts chapter 1, Jesus is ascending and an angel appears and says, why do you look into clouds? This same Jesus who is taken from you will return to you just as he came. So we have this image, we see it again in Revelation 21, of heaven coming down into earth like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Jesus is descending with, with him or coming the dead in Christ. And it says, we who are alive will meet them in the air. And this is, an, this is an image of like our own ascension to meet the Lord in the air, like my family coming out to the driveway to welcome us in, like uh, representatives meeting the president on the tarmac, like uh, the citizens of a town going out to meet Caesar, only to welcome him in. They go to him to confer honor to him. And then Paul says, we will be with the Lord forever. Now, some of you may have just never thought about this topic, or some of you, like, you're, you're unaccustomed to, like, that's actually there? Like, this level of clarity about future hope is actually in the Bible? I am telling you, this is what most Christians, for most of Christian history, has have believed and understood to be our hope. Think about the Nicene Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. You could look at Romans chapter 8. You could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You could look at Revelation 21 and 22, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. There's this, there's this consistent witness of the coming, the appearing of the Lord. And in tandem with that, the resurrection of the dead, the renewal of the earth, and the transformation of our bodies. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. As you hear it, you're going to say, oh my gosh, that's just what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, be dead. We will not all sleep in Christ, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the same language again. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, meaning never to die again, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. This is the consistent witness of Scripture of Christian hope. 
It's the hope of resurrection anchored by the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of history. It's the hope of resurrection that has enabled men and women throughout the generations to be martyred for their faith, to live with courage and boldness. I love how N.T. Wright said, it was those who believed in the bodily resurrection who were burned at the stake and thrown to the lions. Resurrection was always bound to get you in trouble, and it regularly did. The hope of resurrection represents every sad thing coming untrue. And in a season where things have just been wearisome, where our country has lost over 200,000 people, I think closer to 300,000 people, but also just if you look back at human history and just the, the scars that remain on our planet, the, the wounds in the human psyche, there is good news. God is not going to forever abandon the world that he made. All of those how long yearnings and angst that we feel is not just going to echo forever into eternity. God is going to answer the prayers of the faithful through the ages. Come, Lord Jesus. And the scriptures promise us the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. I want you in this, in this season of Advent as we consider the first coming of Christ, I want you to look forward with hope and joy and imagination to consider his second coming. And when he comes, the earth scarred by war and violence and rape and drought and destruction will be renewed. In our hearts, stained by selfishness and pornography and greed and hatred and tribalism, weighed down by anxiety and depression, will be lightened and enlightened on the day when we see him who our hearts desire. And even death, our ultimate enemy, will be defeated. On that day when Christ returns, when the trumpet call of God goes forth, there will be no better place to be than a cemetery. When the dead in Christ will rise with transformed physical bodies, never again to be given over to decay or cancer or coronavirus or MS or heart disease. And even we who are alive on that day will be changed. And this is Christian hope, a hope for the renewal of all things anchored by what happened in the middle of history with the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to consider how Paul wraps up this text, and this represents my heart in bringing you these words from Scripture in this season. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. In view of all of this, encourage one another with these words. I want you to be encouraged, meaning to put courage in you. If we don't even have to ultimately fear death, and what can stop us? If even death itself is going to be defeated, is there anything empowered by the Holy Spirit that we cannot endure? Man, this is a difficult, difficult season. You are one, however, in whom the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells. You are one who, even staring in the face of death, can be confident that this, too, shall be made right. And I can imagine that there are many of you, um, you know, five days out from Christmas, are thinking about that family member who's not going to be at the table this year. 
Maybe it was your spouse. Uh, maybe it was a child. Uh, maybe it was, uh, you know, a mom or a dad or a grandparent or a friend. And you're, you feel the wound and that tender spot in your heart about their absence. I want to encourage you with these words, with the hope that's offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who gives us a sense of sustenance and okayness, even in our grief in the present, but it's not just in the present. In the, in the age to come when Christ returns, we can look forward to the renewal of, of the earth, of the cosmos. We can anticipate with joy the restoration of his presence, seeing him who our heart desires. But we can also count on the assurance of the resurrection of the dead, anchored by the hope of Jesus' own resurrection, being confident that though things are not right right now, all things will be made new. And therefore, we don't have to grieve like the rest of the world who has no hope. Today, I just want to end by praying words of blessing and encouragement over you. And I would also just invite you, those of you who may feel like you've been given over to despair and encouragement, to invite the Lord Jesus to resurrect hope in your own heart. And maybe you've never trusted him with your life and just say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I believe that you're trustworthy. And so I surrender my life to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I just want to pray your blessings over everyone that's listening and watching today. Lord Jesus, that in your mercy, you would just pour out your spirit on those who are hungry for you, those who are discouraged and disheartened. I pray that your joy and your life and the hope of possibility, the hope of renewal and restoration that is to come would fill us with a kind of joy and buoyancy that enables us to be people who endure. For those who are grieving, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would just join them in their grief as you wept with Mary and Martha. Would you weep and be a companion of those who are suffering and those who are sad this Christmas season? For those of us who just feel a sense of weight and sadness about how Christmas is coming down this year in the middle of this COVID season, Lord Jesus, would you prove in your own, in your own way, uh, your faithfulness, giving quiet assurances and reminders uh, of your presence? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've come, that you've come humbly. And we trust that even now your spirit is moving and working in the earth and we want to be a part of whatever it is you're doing. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Amen. I want to end and speak some words of blessing over you from Romans chapter 15. Friends, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God loves you. God bless you. We'll see you around.